The book of Revelation opens, of course, in chapter 1, verse 1, as all books of the Bible do, with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And again, this is written by John on the island of Patmos during the time of the empire of Rome, and he's looking forward to the coming of Jesus, and it's a revelation of Jesus. It's a book of prophecy that unfolds the future as it looks to Jesus and specifically culminates at the coming of Jesus and his return to the earth. And after going through the history of the church from that time of John to the coming of Jesus, it begins to focus on the end-time events that will happen as the coming of Jesus is closer and closer, a time in which I believe we are living right now. And after it outlines a time of difficulty for the church, a time of persecution for the church, then we find the church of God still faithful, still, uh, still true to the Lord, described in Revelation chapter 14. So if you return, please turn to Revelation chapter 14 as we give the immediate context for our message today. In Revelation chapter 14, John sees a vision of God's faithful, triumphant, victorious, redeemed, symbolically represented by the number 144,000. And it describes them in verse 5 of Revelation 14 as, In their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So God's true and faithful people, apparently in their mouths, have no deceit, which of course means that in their mouths is found truth. They're giving a message of truth. And the following verses outline what those messages are. We call them the three angels' messages that are given at these closing hours of earth's history. The first angel's message starts there in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So out of the, in chapters 13 and 14, there's eight different calls to worship, only one of which is the call to the true God, and is right here in the first angel's message. And it says to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water, a call to keep God's memorial of creation, the seventh-day Sabbath. And it also says that the hour of his what? Judgment has come. It indicates that this, his message is given at a certain time, and that's the time of the beginning of God's judgment in heaven. Then we read in verse 8, the second angel's message. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So notice that Babylon, this great power, has for so long been persecuting God's people, deceiving the whole world, giving them wine to drink, the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And it's an interesting play on words, because shortly the wrath of God is going to be poured out people to drink. But Babylon has been making people drink this stuporous wine, but now Babylon has fallen. The truth of God has been revealed and people have an opportunity to make a decision, which leads us to verse 9, the third angel's message. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. Some of the strongest language in Scripture is saved for this third angel's message. And basically what you see there 
is God's faithful people at the very close of probationary time in earth's history, while God is in his judgment seat, reviewing the history of the world, reviewing the cases of individuals, a call goes forth to basically to choose you this day whom you will serve. Babylon has fallen. There's no need to be deceived. There is truth accessible. The message is clear. Don't take the mark. Don't take the mark of the beast. And immediately after that, we see in Revelation chapter 14, go to verse 14 now. After the giving of the three angels' messages, you find a description of the coming of Jesus. Then I looked, verse 14, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle of the earth, and the earth was reaped. So you have the culmination of Jesus' return here, which is preceded immediately by the giving of these three angels' messages. Now our burden today is to cover in one message, Revelation chapter 15 through 20. 15 through 20. It's a task, but it's doable. The Lord will give us his help, but we should ask for his strength as we begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, please be with us now as we study your word. Help us to understand the great themes of this book and the truth that it has for us today. And Lord, more than a mere cognitive understanding, give us a spiritual application through your Holy Spirit. Lord, let us be ready for your coming. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Basically, what we find in a nutshell in Revelations chapter 15 through 20 is the execution of God's justice on Satan and sinners in two parts. The plagues, the seven last plagues that precede his coming, and then the millennial judgment that happens after his coming. God's handling of Satan and his followers at the very close of earth's history. So we go to Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And if you recall, the third angel's message says the wrath of God is going to be poured out on those who receive the mark of the beast. So don't take the mark. Now the wrath is ready to be poured out. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So notice he sees the victorious once again, just as he had seen in Revelation chapter 14. They're watching this go on. And it says in verse 3 that they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. And notice the rhetorical question in verse 4. I believe sets sets the theme for the rest of the verses that come after it. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are worthy, are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been made manifest. Notice that the time of the judgment has already come now, and now the question is, how can people not worship you when you've given such evidence and such opportunity? How is it possible? 
Well, let's look in verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony is open in heaven. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Notice, please, that in the third angel's message, the hour of his judgment has come, and God is in this holy temple. Jesus Christ is in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, and it's from that location that these seven plagues are poured out. Jesus Christ has not returned yet, but the judgment has commenced, and now the execution has begun in these seven last plagues. So Revelation chapter 15, which by the way, we just read an entire chapter of the Bible. That was easy. Okay? But Revelation chapter 15 simply sets the stage and is the prelude to the pouring out of the seven plagues that you find in Revelation chapter 16. Now, before we get into this pouring out of these plagues, you might think, now, this is just God just, you know, frustrated and just decides to pour out all his anger. Another book of the Bible explains how the wrath of God is poured out. And let's pause for a moment before we dive into seeing how the wrath is poured out. Go to Romans chapter 1. Leave your finger in Revelation 16 because we're going to come back to it. But just briefly, turn back to Romans chapter 1 and notice the language of the Apostle Paul when he describes the wrath of God being poured out. Notice what he says. Revelation chapter 1. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18. Scripture reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, So that they are without what? Excuse. So apparently people have had an opportunity to know. They've rejected the opportunity. They've rejected the light. They've loved the darkness instead. And now the wrath of God is being poured out, as the Apostle Paul describes. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And notice the language of verse 24. Therefore, God also, what? Gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Notice they had the opportunity for the truth, but they preferred the lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So notice they had an opportunity to know God. They had every opportunity for truth and the difference between right and wrong, and yet they chose the lie instead of the truth. They decided to dwell in darkness instead of light, and they worshiped the creature instead of the Creator, which, of course, is the bottom line issue at the end of time with the three angels' message. Fear God and worship Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Notice again, verse 26, the same language is used. 
For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Skip down to verse 28. And even, they, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And it lists off the things that they do. And it's not because God makes them do it, because they choose to do it, correct? Now, verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So notice that God's wrath is poured out on those who know the difference between right and wrong. They look at the truth and they prefer the lie. They reject the light and they live in the dark and their evil deeds are manifest. And God, according to this, hands them over to what they've chosen. This informs the wrath of God being poured out in Revelation chapter 16. God does not arbitrarily choose some people to suffer and some people to be saved. Everyone has had their opportunity. Notice these seven last plagues follow only after Babylon has fallen and everyone has had the third angel's message. Everyone has had an opportunity to choose. And now that those decisions are made, the seven last plagues simply demonstrate the character of the chooser. We see this come to light as we see seven plagues poured out. Revelation 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And in symbolic language, and praise the Lord, the wrath of God has not been poured out. We have not seen these seven plagues, and so I cannot tell you exactly what the seven plagues are going to look like, what this symbolic language will be manifest. However, it will not be pleasant. So at all costs, avoid it. Which is possible by our choices, right? But notice what it says in verse 2. It starts these plagues being poured out. So the first went out and poured out on his bowl on the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Notice those who worshipped the image. And if you recall, there was a death decree for those who refused to get the mark of the beast. Right? They would be restricted from buying and selling. They would ultimately be caused to die. And it said, basically, if you don't take the mark, you're going to suffer our wrath and be killed. God, on the other hand, with his third angel's message, says, no, 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 no. If you do take the mark, you're going to suffer wrath and be killed. And they had to choose, who do we trust in? That which we can see or what God has said? And now it's manifest that decision. Verse 3, then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as a, and as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. And notice now what happens in verse 4. Something interesting goes on besides just the plagues themselves. I want you to take note of it. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, so he's explaining why this is happening. You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Notice they're just receiving what they've invested in. They're reaping what they've sown. 
right? The Lord has given an opportunity for their sins to be forgiven, but if they've rejected that opportunity, justice is coming. They're getting their just due. Verse 7, and I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, just and righteous are your judgments. If you notice, apparently when these seven plagues are being poured out, people are evaluating the truth and the justice of what God is doing. Is it fair? Is what he's doing right? Is it true? And apparently the answer comes back, what you're doing is fair, it is just, it is right. And he continues on, verse 8, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who had the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So notice again here, the Lord is demonstrating his power and his greatness, and there is no repentance in their heart, simply demonstrating the character that they've developed. Verse 10, then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne and on the beast and on the king, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. So what's their response? They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Now again, probation is closed at this point. But the point is being shown that even if it were open, no matter what God would do, there is nothing that would bring them back. They are set in their ways, their character is fully formed, and now it's being revealed for all the universe to see. Notice what kind of people they really are. Then we get to the sixth and seventh plagues, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And you recall from our previous study that that's the, the unholy trinity, the counterfeit trinity from Revelation chapter 13, the sea beast, the papal power, the earth beast, the United States and Bible prophecy, and of course, the dragon himself, which is the counterfeit God. You had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, a counterfeit now. And notice what it says, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Fascinating. And then the Lord decides to insert this. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Why would the Lord insert a promise of his coming at this point? Well, A, it's almost going to come. This is the sixth plague, but... What I believe we see here, and I wish we just simply had more time to study it in depth, please do. But I believe this is the final deception of Satan being outlined right here. The final deception of Satan. He not only wants to be like Christ, he wants to stand as Christ and be worshipped as God. And I believe what we see here, Mrs. White describes it in great controversy, is Satan personating the coming of Jesus himself. Satan will show up and the people have chosen their leader and they see Satan coming, the imposter, and they follow him instead of the true. But Jesus says, no, 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 wait, I'm still coming, not yet. What this is is counterfeit. Then we finally find in verse 17, the seventh pole. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out from the temple of heaven, from the throne, saying, it is done. So that is from the throne, now it's done. The judgment has been completed and now the Wrath of God has been completed and poured out. Now it's time for Jesus to return. 
And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such, as a, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail fell from heaven upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. And notice again, men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. And that's the end of Revelation chapter 16, the pouring out of these seven plagues. Now, if you recall, the book of Revelation has multiple sets of sevens, right? You have the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. And all of those take place in the historical first half of Revelation that basically spans history from the time of John all the way to the coming of Jesus, the span of the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. But these seven plagues are not another parallel of the sevens of those. They don't span all of the Christian history. They take place after the close of probation, yet before the coming of Jesus. There's a reason they're called the last plagues. This is it. And here they're completed, and and Jesus is just about to return. Now, with that picture in mind, we move to chapter 17, and John is shown a picture specifically of Babylon the Great, this woman, this imposter woman, this Uh, apostate church who has led the whole world astray. And notice what he's told here in chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So clearly we're going to be reviewing now the judgment specifically of this great harlot who sits on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, what's to me fascinating about Revelation 17, 18, and 19 is it simply outlines this destruction of Babylon under a microscope. Okay? It had warned that Babylon has fallen, come out of her, my people, and now you see the falling of Babylon as it takes place, this antichrist power that has led the whole world astray, who claims, by the way, notice it's it's committed fornication with the kings of the earth, sits on all the waters, all the people claims to be, has this title, Babylon the Great. But if you go to the other side of Matthew chapter 19, at the end of it, You see the coming of Jesus, and start with verse 11, and notice the contrast between the the woman riding that beast, who's the presumptive ruler of the world at that time, and the true king who comes to dethrone the apostle. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Notice you judge first, and then you make war, you... 
render judgment, then you execute judgment. This is Jesus Christ, and he's riding on a white horse, and he is faithful and true and not the apostate that we've seen before. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except for himself. And he goes on to describe him. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. By the way, who wrote the book of Revelation? John, correct? Has he ever employed the term the Word of God to describe Jesus Christ? Absolutely, the beginning of his gospel. Now out of his mouth, I'm sorry, verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it, if he should, he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here we have a picture of the coming of Jesus, the true king, to dethrone the imposter queen that has set upon those many waters. And again, it's a picture very similar to what we saw in Revelation chapter 14, the coming of Jesus and the destruction of the wicked. And it describes it in this way. It's graphic language, but this is what the scripture records. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So you see this great conflict coming. Jesus is returning with his army. Satan and his imposter uh, antichrist power is leading the whole world to conflict here. Verse 20, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which, was, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's a very graphic picture, but Jesus Christ returns, and all the wicked are against him. They're furious at him. They're following their chosen leader, Satan, into battle against Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus Christ wins. By the way, Jesus Christ has never lost any battle. So I don't know what deception has to be in their mind that they, this time we can take him. But they go up and Jesus Christ treads the winepress himself. And it says the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. So you have this picture of the destruction of the wicked at the second coming of Jesus, and you would think, ah, there it is. The judgment has occurred. The seven last plagues have been poured out. Their character has been revealed for who they really are. Everyone can see for themselves that God is just and true in what he does. Jesus returns to the earth. Of course, the righteous are taken to heaven. The wicked are destroyed, and the whole thing is over. Almost. The one Wicked being who survives the second coming is Satan. Now, what's it? Can God just not finish the job? Can he just not kill him? Of course not. But this question 
is what Revelation chapter 20 was written for. Look at chapter 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. By the way, that bottomless pit, in Greek, that's the word abusos, where we get abyss, the big deep. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the earth was without form and void. Basically, what you have in, in, in the seven last plagues, interestingly enough, if you want to study it out sometime, you find basically the undoing, the unraveling of creation, bringing the earth back to its original state of empty, dark, void, and now there's only one being left there, Satan himself. Again, verse 1, Then I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he, and look at this language, he must be released for a little while. Now, obviously, given the context, why can't he deceive the nations anymore? There's nobody to deceive. They're all dead, right? He's bound by a chain of circumstance. He's stuck to this one location where there are no nations. There's nothing going on. It's just him and his thoughts. But apparently after this, he's going to be released for a little while. And not going to be. He must be. We're going to see why. But let's keep going to verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Well, who are these them? Who has given this judgment? Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their, right hand, or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now let me ask you a question. Given the context we've been studying, and we know the place in the sequence, is this judgment to determine who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost? No. That's already clearly been established. The wicked have been destroyed. The redeemed are in heaven already. They're not establishing who's going to go to heaven because they're there. right? But apparently what they're doing is reviewing God's work of judgment. Because the judgment had been complete before the seven last plagues were poured out. But now they're looking over the books for themselves. As the Bible, by the way, had prophesied that they would do. You see several instances of this um, prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we would judge angels. We would judge men, and this is what's happening. But it says in verse 5, But the rest of the dead, that is the wicked, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Okay? So this, what they're experiencing now, this resurrected righteous, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now in verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Which is an indication that there will be a great resurrection of the wicked and he will now have people to tempt again. And will go out, in fact it says that specifically in verse 8. And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for what? For battle. Has he done this before? 
Yes, he's personated Christ. He's tried to rally the whole world, get everyone to worship and volunteer. And when Jesus Christ comes, let's take him. And the result was bad, right? All the wicked were wiped out. But they resurrect again. And I can imagine, sanctified imagination, that as they resurrect, Satan says, you're welcome. Let's go get them. Let's go one more shot. By the way, in verse 8, has some of the saddest words in Scripture, I believe. When it describes the four nations in the corner of the earth, it says, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Think about that. Apparently, there's a great number of people who would prefer to follow Satan than follow Jesus. And now they follow him once again. Verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. They're killed all over again. Then the devil, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were. Uh, are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And of course, biblically, we understand forever means until it's expired, until the life is gone, until they're completely destroyed, root and branch, nothing is left but ashes. Which if Revelation 20 ended at verse 10, I would be sitting there thinking, wait, 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 wait. So the judgment happened, and it was clear who was the righteous and who were the wicked. God pours out the seven last plagues, and it culminates in everyone's, all the wicked's death. Then why wait another thousand years and wake them all up again just to kill them again? Doesn't make sense. But I believe that question is why the next verse is written. The next verses. Then I saw a great white throne on, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. It's interesting. It's the same language as we had in Revelation chapter 12 when Satan was originally cast out of heaven and there was found no place for them in heaven any longer. When Christ cast them out of the courts of heaven, it's because they didn't fit into heaven anymore. They didn't belong to that place. And here, apparently, the same thing happens now to his followers. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was open, which is the book of life. So apparently there's the book of record of their lives, and there's the book of life, which is the Lamb's book. And the dead were judged according to which? To their works, by the things which were written in the books. Now, all of us are writing a book right now, a book of record. But I praise God that I am not in the judgment judged merely by my record of my rights and my wrongs, because I would be done. Don't get snooty, so would you. (laughs) All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, true? But praise the Lord, there's that Lamb's book of life, and he can blot out our sins, and we can have our name recorded in the Lamb's book of life instead. So when he comes to my name, he just sees a big blot of blood, and he says, no, 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 his name's over here. His name's listed in my book. Apparently, both books are open at this point. But they've decided not to have their name in the Lamb's Book of Life. They're just going to stand by their record and stand before a holy God in their acts and their their deeds. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, 
and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So why would God do this? First of all, it seems clear that God's work of judgment in determining the righteous from the wicked is done in advance of his coming. It's a pre-advent judgment. It's an investigative phase. Beginning with the seven last plagues, he pours out that execution on the wicked. And in that seven last plagues process, the character of those individuals is revealed for who they really are. They continue to blaspheme God. They refuse to repent. Even if it were possible, they wouldn't even want it. And Christ returns, and they are eviscerated with the brightness of his coming. But that thousand years is given. First of all, apparently Satan is bound, and he has to be held for it because apparently something's coming at the end of it for him. Okay? But the thousand years, according to Scripture, is given, first of all, so that the righteous can have an opportunity to review the books of judgment that God has already established in the pre-advent judgment. You might want to call this the post-advent judgment, if you can do such a thing. But after the coming of Jesus, the righteous have an opportunity to review why they're there and why others aren't. These books of record they see for themselves. And so at this point, the unfallen creatures, of course, have remained loyal ever since there was an opportunity for sin. No problem. The righteous have been redeemed from the earth, and they've had a chance to review the judgment. But the wicked haven't had a chance to see who they really are. And that's what this purpose of this millennium seems to be. Because the Bible does not just declare that someday the righteous will acknowledge the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Apparently, according to Scripture, even the wicked will recognize Jesus for who he is. They will see the difference between right and wrong. And not out of contrition and not out of love and not out of genuine repentance, but from the sheer weight of evidence, they too will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Notice this. The Bible seems to indicate this in several passages. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Speaking of the great sacrifice of Jesus. It says in verse 5, It appeals to us. It says, Let this mind be in you which was also in in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That's coming his first coming, yes? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And it defines who every is, of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, including the dead, right? They will raise to see the acknowledgement. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In fact, by the way, Paul wasn't the first one to write about this. He picked this up from the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah chapter 45. I believe the picture of the same event is described here in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 to 24. Isaiah 45, starting with verse 22, notice what Scripture says. 
The Lord declares, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And it's interesting that in the final analysis, there will be the true Christ and the Antichrist, and the world will have to choose between the true God and the false. And God says, there is no other choice. That's just a house of cards. Babylon has fallen. That's not even real. I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall take an oath. And notice it defines who every is. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. So it's both the righteous and the wicked will acknowledge the supremacy of Christ. It says, In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. The God who glorifies and redeems his saints will also be acknowledged by the wicked as the one true God commenting on this millennium judgment and what its purpose is, we read in Desire of Ages, page 58. In the day of final judgment, every lost soul will understand the nature of his own rejection of truth. Think about how how incredibly, from our perspective, how crazy this seems. These people are going to be dead for eternity. So why waste your time, from a human perspective, to wake them up, to show them where they're wrong, just to have them die again. But think about it. For the rest of eternity, no one can ever say, well, if only they had a chance, or if only they had seen, or if only God had showed them the books, why did only the righteous get to see the books? Can't the wicked? Even those who are going to be dead, Christ cares what they think. Friends, it matters to you, it matters to God what you think. Your thoughts, your loyalties, either for or against him, are important even for you to see. Notice this. In the day of final judgment, every lost soul will understand the nature of his own rejection of truth. The cross will be presented, and its real bearing will be seen by every mind that has been blinded by transgression. So think about that. The Lamb and his book of life and what opportunity for salvation will be presented And then there's to be Satan and his counterfeit stripped away and people will see which character did I build in this life. But before before the vision of Calvary with this mysterious victim, sinners will stand condemned. Every lying excuse will be swept away. Human apostasy will appear in its heinous character. Men will see what their choice has been. Every question of truth and error and the long-standing controversy will then have been made plain. In the judgment of the universe, God will stand clear of blame for the existence or continuance of evil. People will say, well, why did God even... Let me show you everything so that no more questions have to come up. It will be demonstrated that the divine decrees are not accessory to sin. There was no defect in God's government. No cause for disaffection. When the thoughts of all hearts shall be revealed, both the loyal and the rebellious will unite in declaring, and she quotes from Revelation chapter 15, Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thy judgments are made manifest. I want to close with two passages. Let's go to the book of Ezekiel. You know, when we read about the seven last plagues and this executing of judgment of God, we, 
Sometimes we get an unbalanced view. Sometimes we, the view of God is presented that he just loves and loves and loves. He will never, ever, ever actually enforce a rule. He'll just be merciful and gracious and merciful and gracious and love, 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 love. And we have a picture of love that says it has no justice. It's just a marshmallow pigment, a figment of our imagination, Hollywood sentimentalism. That's not real love. But on the other hand, you can go the other extreme and show God is a judge of exactness and, and, and no mercy and he's going to get you and he's out to find every little fault. That's not true either. The character of God is a beautiful harmony of mercy and forgiveness and compassion with justice that will finally put an end to transgression. It's the beautiful combination of these things. It's higher than the highest human thought can reach. And notice how God himself describes in Ezekiel chapter 33, in verse 11, what message he has for his people who are inclined to sin and who wander away from him. Notice what he says to them. And I believe he says to us at these final hours of earth's history, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no what? Pleasure in the death of the wicked. Is God looking forward to pouring out the seven last plagues? Absolutely not. Is he looking forward to seeing his creatures destroyed by fire? Of course not. He says, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it. Notice he says, as I say to them, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. We could also insert here Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus talks about when the Son of Man will come in his glory with all of his angels. And, he, and when the wicked are thrown into that fire, he calls it the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's meant to destroy Satan, but the plan is to redeem sinners. Any sinner that goes, he said, that's on you. I've given you every option. Why would you die? In fact, he continues saying those very things. Again, in verse 11 of Ezekiel 33, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Why should you die when life has been given as an option? Our last text is 2 Peter Chapter 3, the same concept of a God of justice and mercy is painted in the New Testament by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. And notice the language, how similar it is, both New and Old Testament, the character of the God that we serve. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness. So what's he waiting for? But is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, I would love it if at the end of time there was nobody to destroy because everybody was faithful. That'd be a great thing. That's what God wants. That's what his will is, but he's not going to force our will. You choose for yourself, you say, but I'm standing here offering you life. And notice again, verse 9, and then watch how it works with verse 10. Again, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it shall be burned up. Therefore, so in light of this coming of Jesus, 
since all these things will be dissolved, here's the question it leaves us with. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Think about that. As we look forward to the time of Christ's return, which, by the way, we talk about being ready for his coming. What we need to be ready is for the close of probation, for the judgment hour to finish, and then it's simply executing that justice as it goes on. But as God is standing in his holy temple right now, in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, he's standing there, I believe, saying the same thing. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I have to do it. This conflict must come to a close. The universe will be purified. We will be together once again. And the question is, do you want to have a place here? So many Christians, I believe, and I've been one of them, Shum Troy, I'm sure, but have been so excited about Christ's promise to prepare a place for us that we neglect his promise to prepare us for that place. And that's what this time is for. This time of life, this probationary time, not just this time in earth's history, but yes, we happen to be living then, but this little slice of humanity that we've been given, from the cradle to the grave, this life that we have, is simply a foretaste, and God is asking the question, in this life, do you want to develop a character that will fit in there, or would just rather not be? And I believe the Lord is, is giving each one of us that opportunity for salvation today. He's promising to take whatever crimson stain you have and say, let's start over, let's start fresh. I can make you clean even today. Why should you die? Why don't you come to me and live? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.